For January 8th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 497. Look on my works, ye mighty, and have a good time. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking about whatever goes on in the culture that interests us. Whether it's a specific topic like uh, tonight's Golden Globes ceremony, where Hollywood tries to find a glamorous way to castigate itself after uh, revelations of, of sexual misconduct of all sorts that have gone unknown and unpunished for years, uh, unjustifiably so. And we'll see how they pull off that balancing act uh, and how uh, the host, who is Seth Meyers, manages to thread that particular needle in uh, in his monologue and how people do it. Uh, but uh, tonight, talking about something else, talking about, uh, talking about for the new year... Talking about great good fortune. Talking about prosperity and luck in the new year. And how we can all guarantee a wonderful, prosperous, and lucky 2018. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends who I am lucky to have. Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hi, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, hello. Mark, I understand that you spent the holidays in Vegas. Did you win enough to fund overthinking it for the next 40 years? You know, it's funny I did, Matt. <laughs> oh, that's uh, wonderful. And then, I proceeded, and then I proceeded to lose all that money. Uh, you know, I, I, like, I cashed in on my 401k, <laughs> put it all on red, won, put it all on red again, and, and didn't win again. I am still confused as to how that outcome came about. I'm sorry, Matt. That, we were this, is, close. I know, this that, close. That is both a, a, a terrible fiscal tragedy and a wonderful yes and from you. So, <laughs> so uh, tell us about the experience. How was Las Vegas? Vegas. It was uh, interesting. I mean, I, I'm going okay, so to stomp on you. I love Vegas. So uh, if you don't love Vegas, fight me. I don't love it. I found it interesting. I, I, if I have another reason to go for a conference or something, I'll go, but I'm not going to make it another destination. So this was my first time, in case you couldn't tell. Yes, I'm an adult American male of the age of 36, and I went this long in my life having gone to Las Vegas. So sue me. Or take me to the craps table and, and, and beat me there. Um, I was very curious to go. Of course, I've heard all these things about it. It's in the movies. It's in the pop culture. Uh, I'd been to a casino before, maybe for like a couple of hours, and like uh, at Foxwoods or Mohegan in Connecticut. But that barely counts. This is Vegas, baby. Vegas, the strip, the neon, the lights, the glitz, the glamour, the Bellagio fountain. Um, walking up and down this monstrosity of a like a six-lane highway because the city was designed by uh, someone who's never played SimCity before and, you know, figure out the mass transit button. Um, anyway, all that aside, uh, I was, of course, primarily interested in the gambling phenomenon because I'm not much of a gambler. And that ostensibly is the reason why uh, people go to Vegas. I mean, they have done a good job of diversifying and branching out to all other different forms of entertainment. Uh, the concerts, of course, Britney Spears, Celine Dion, Elton John, you know, p- people come and do a month's long residence there, Cirque du Soleil, so on and so forth. But uh, the money, you know, the, 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 the city lives and breathes and dies on gambling 
revenue, right? You know, and so if you've never been to Vegas, um, and I really do recommend that you go, I mean, right, you hit the gambling floor and you're just kind of overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of the games, mostly slot machines, but of course, craps, poker, so on and so forth. And uh, as you roam about and as you kind of take in the experience and think about what it is you're going to do and you start to actually play the games, my working kind of hypothesis and theory about Vegas, at least the gambling experience, is that there are different degrees to which uh, you're kind of fooling yourself that this is you're applying your skill as something which is ultimately a game of chance. Um, poker being kind of at the highest level of that, um, where uh, you're not so much playing against the house, you're playing against other players. Uh, uh but again, everything falls down to the luck of the draw of the cards. Um, but you do kind of read other people and you have strategizer on your bets and that sort of thing. So there's some skill with that. Um, going down to the other degrees of, let's say, craps, where which is extremely complicated. I spent probably an hour playing an electronic craps game and never really figured it out and just kind of mashed some buttons uh, and won a tiny little bit of money back. Um, and then all the way down to its lowest common denominator, the infamous and omnipresent slot machine. Which at uh, a certain point, uh, there's lots of buttons you can push, but it ultimately comes down to just push a button, some stuff flies on the screen, and most likely you lose some money, but sometimes you win a little bit of money. Um, And so, you know, I I think if you're an elitist and approaching all this is like, ugh, these simpletons tossing away their money, uh, you might look at the slot machine and be like, this is the dumbest thing in the world. But is it not also something admirable in that they stripped away all the pretense for what this exercise is, or most of the pretense? Uh, of what this exercise is, and they ultimately give you a button to push, to flush the money down the toilet, and occasionally get some back. So those are my opening thoughts on gambling in Las Vegas. Uh, it is uh, both kind of a very still head-scratching uh, exercise and phenomenon to me, but uh, at, at leaving the airport, when I had some time to kill it because the flight was delayed, I was like, oh, those stupid slot machines. I'll give it another whirl. Threw th- $3 into the machine, pushed the button, got $30 back, my heart was racing. I felt the adrenaline rush, and I was this close to giving it another spin. And I was like, "No!" And I walked away. Oof. thirty dollars richer. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's wonderful. That'll that'll uh, that'll buy you all a month at the the full Harvey level of membership for overthinking it. So thank you, <laughs> thank you, Mark, for uh, your contribution to the cause. Yeah. So so oh, he, oh, I put it into the overthinking slot machine now, and I get some more money back. Right? That's how this works. Right? <laughs> you get a yeah. you get the oh. Pete cast back. You put your money. You put your money in, and Pete Fenzel comes out. We are superior to Vegas in that particular sense. Um, so uh, here's why gambling in Vegas. This here's why gambling, casino gambling, is you you'll lose over the long term. The house knows the odds, and the house sets the payoffs, and that's it. That's the right. whole, you yeah. know, if they pay you slightly less for the, uh, than the probability of a thing uh, happening. And so over time, you're going to lose, oh, you know, over time, it, the everything, every roll of the dice, every draw of the cards, you know, reverts to the mean and you're going to uh, you're going to lose money. Um, so there's no there's really no there's there's especially no skill in craps, though. Craps is so much fun. Uh, there's you know, there's strategy in blackjack but it's more um minimizing losses poker is really the only game where you can uh 
uh, poker is the only game where you're actually playing playing other people in any any kind of a fair way. Though in any serious poker room in Vegas, a lot of the people are pros, and you're just not you're not better than them because you're just not. Um, and it's uh, but it's it's I you know it's funny I don't know like I play I, I once in Vegas saw uh, the comedian Jackie Mason who uh, whose shtick is calling everyone a Nazi bastard. Nazi bastards. It's he just kind of mumbles it, you know, at random points throughout throughout his act, and you know it works for him. Um, he uh, he had a great bit about Vegas, and he said whenever you talk to people in Vegas, they always sort of preface their conversation with how much they're there to lose, right? Like, oh, I'm you know, hey, Jack, how are you doing? How's how's your time in Vegas? Oh, great, I, I'm here to lose five hundred dollars. <laughs> How's, how's your trip to Vegas? What are you here to do? Oh, I'm here to lose $2,500. You know, I'm here to lose $10,000. Uh, they always say that. Whenever you ask anyone how their gambling is over the course of their life, they shrug and always say, eh, I'm about even. You're not even, you lose, you know, you lose, you sort of lose over the, you lose over the long term. But like Vegas specifically, I don't know, I feel like is a bigger, uh, is a bigger thing than that and has come to, mean more than just uh you know card tables or slot machines or um or things that with with the entertainment that you talked about with the uh you know with the um the uh Cirque du Soleil the not not even a residency a kind of permanent uh entertainment takeover i mean it's sort of the law that if you go to Vegas you have to to see a Cirque du Soleil show also like fancy restaurants you know with super high priced things um i you know i don't know where you ate or uh stuff but it was uh it was good and then like there's also like a sort of dance club thing which i kind of opt out of listeners to the tft podcast no i don't like dance music but it's more than that even it's more than the kind of the diversified entertainment it's going to be in an atmosphere of licentiousness uh pete i wonder do you have any any thoughts about uh about the atmosphere of of sort of sin and freedom and licentiousness in las vegas does what happens in vegas actually stay (laughs) in vegas because this, I feel like for me, because I think I might be similar to Mark in this respect, the presence of gambling for me gets in the way of the atmosphere of licentiousness because of the mathematics involved, potentially. Wherein <laughs> I, I am too, I, I got really into craps at one point, and I never actually, I've never been to Vegas, but I've been to casinos elsewhere. During the time that I was into craps, I went to a casino in the Caribbean. I was on vacation there. I think it was like a spring break in college. I didn't spend a lot of money. I can tell that whole story another time. But learning something like an optimal way to play craps and trying to figure out what sort of bets were happening at a particular table was very exciting, but it was not something that suspended the rules. It wasn't something that felt free. It felt very structured. And so I'm really interested in people who can go to a casino environment or people who do go to a casino environment and feel this suspension of moral and identity-based constraint. Not necessarily that I'm always seeking out this sort of thing, but I think it's an important part of culture. It's the root of carnival celebrations, as I think we've talked about a number of times in the podcast, all over the world, upending the social order, having some sort of space where you can suspend the rules that you normally live by seems to be important to cultures all over the place. 
And so I'm interested in Vegas as a transformative place of this nature, but I have difficulty reconciling that with it being a place of gaming, because for me, gaming tends to be serious. But dancing is silly, right? Celine Dion would be awesome, or Britney Spears. I would totally go see those shows. Uh, if I'm not all of them, I'm sure they're all very expensive. But the idea of then going and playing games for money is like, no, that's that's serious. That's serious business. So I mean, you say you love Matt, Vegas, Matt. You say you love it. And so is it this? Is it that you do things or you are around? I mean, of course, you don't have to say what happens in Vegas does stay in Vegas. You don't have to confess to anything here. But is it merely being around the spirit of people who might be doing these things that informs it with a certain, uh, what, energy of the moment, joy of the place? Uh, or I mean, I like, do you not? You know? Yeah, I like Vegas for the same reason that I like Disneyland, right? I love being in mm. both places. I, I don't even love all, uh, most of the rides at Disneyland. I just love to be in the place. You know, and I love to, I, you know, because it's, it's, you sort of look around and everything has been designed around you. Everything has been sort of engineered to within an inch of its life to promote behavior, to promote certain kinds of, of behavior, to make you perceive, uh, and, make you decide to act in certain ways. And it's just, you know, I don't know. It's just so something about it. Like in both cases, there's a kind of over the top opulence uh, in Vegas in particular, there's a real tasteless gaudiness um, to it that I, I sort of find, I mean, I sort of find fascinating, you know, and it's, it's like, I don't, I don't go there looking to like make money and I don't after like a little, you know, I did, I did probably a similar thing to you, Pete with craps. And I did a, a similar thing with blackjack and like did an online trainer so that I knew the optimal bets in, in, you know, all combinations, depending on what card the dealer was showing and, you know, what I had, uh, and the whole whole uh you know the the whole like training to get all of those things um very uh very automatic get all of those responses very automatic and and it was um and there there is something about that there is a kind of immediacy to the to to the either irregular dopamine hit or or whatever the opposite of that is the the feeling the neurotransmitters that that convey the sense of of losing and so there's this there is this uh uh, intermittent reward, right? And that is, you know, if it, if you remember, if you uh, everyone recalled Psychology One Ten, right? Like that is how you mess a lab rat up uh, is intermittent reward and intermittent shocks. Um, you you can produce sort of addictive behavior in you know in situations of classical yeah. classical conditioning. Cash that out a little bit for those who might not be familiar with the rats. Oh, okay. So, so, okay. Here's a, you know, rat in a cage. There's a little, there's a little, little lever, right? Like uh, rat hits the lever, gets a food pellet. Rat hits the lever again, gets a food pellet. Rat hits the lever again, gets the food pellet. Positive reinforcement, right? Like you're, you're going to uh, train that behavior into the rat. And uh, you may think you're better than the rat, but uh, you're not better than the rat. And I think Mark will attest because he's been in Las Vegas recently. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm, I'm at that level. And so the next step of that, right, is beyond hitting the pellet to get the, uh, the, the lever to get the pellet. If you set it up that way, then the rat will just hit the pellet, hit the, hit the lever when he's hungry. Yep. Now, if you want to get the uh, rat to be addicted 
to a certain type of behavior, then you make the distribution of the food pellet completely random. Right. Well, there's if another. I remember this correctly. Yeah. Right? So there's another. There's another step, right? Which is, uh, you know, lever shock, lever shock, lever shock. Then that's negative, negative reinforcement, and you're going to train the rat never to hit the thing. Now, if you do random distribution of reward, that's one level. But if you do random distribution of reward and punishment, that's the magic. That's the juice that daddy likes. You know, that's like, uh, <laughs> right? That's what, that's how you really, that's how you really sort of condition compulsive behavior into, uh, um, into things. And if it's a cocaine pellet instead of a food pellet, like depending on the, you know, depending on the nature of the, the, if you can really amp up the kind of the neurotransmitter strength of the reward, um, you know, uh, you you get it now. If our if our friend, uh, professional psychologist Tim Swan, were here from the UK, he would he would tell us something about the like the mesolimbic dopamine reuptake pathways and uh, addictive process and how it kind of hijacks and, and mimics and hijacks the normal learning um, mechanisms of the brain, the kind of the reward for learning mechanisms of the brain. And this is a similar this is a similar sort of process. You're kind of hijacking the uh, survival center, the reward center, sometimes it's called, or the, the kind of the learning center, how you sort of learn good, how you learn, uh, adaptive, adaptive behavior. And that's like, so that's, that's how you do it. And I, you know, I felt that like when, when I was at the, yeah, at the time of the tables, but now I don't, you know, now I don't even go now. It's now it's just sort of a cheap resort vacation because a lot of the prices for things are actually below market because they're they're because uh, gambling is such a high margin business that, um, um, they can afford to use, you know, fairly luxurious hotel rooms, nice amenities, uh, restaurants, things like this as as loss leaders uh, to the point where if you really start winning, really winning, someone's going to take notice and, and start giving you things for free uh, just to keep you there and to keep you at the um, to keep you at the tables. And so I, I sort of treat it like uh, an accessible, affordable sort of resort vacation. But for me, there is this this thing of like marveling at the. Uh, uh, you know, at this sort of Ozymandian um, edifices uh, constructed to to support this, you know, this this whole thing, and also how grand um, it can be the superstructures put on such a basic transaction, which is that hey, if you give me a dollar, maybe I'll give you ten dollars back. Give me a dollar, okay? I've got your dollar. <laughs> nope. <laughs> So I really want to dig into this a little bit more because I feel like this is really important for the culture, for the culture in the United States around the world right now, which I would describe it as the decoupling of symbol from signified incentive, I guess might be a way of putting it, I suppose, which would be that we have feelings of good and bad, of reward and punishment that we associate culturally with certain things and certain concepts that have cultural currency of some sort. And there are we as we come to know more about neurological response, we come to develop a new discourse of understanding and explaining reward structures independently of the description of these old ways of talking about it that had these sort of meanings. So, for example, we are all 
children of the 90s, I suppose. So we've all seen Swingers, which is, I think, one of the quintessential Vegas movies, as far as I'm concerned. Certainly for our generation. You guys have seen Swingers, right? Sure. Yeah, which is not like about Swingers. Beer, man. Yeah, <laughs> Swingers is not about Swingers. Uh, swingers is about a, a guy who's after a breakup who's frustrated and needs to... Uh, revisit he needs he's been to he's been to paradise but he's never been to him and he needs to revisit his sexuality and and kind of find his power uh but it's through the very sort of masculinocentric lens it's vince vaughn's big coming out party uh future iron man director john favreau is the plucky down in his life protagonist and it also features future peer from office space and that's a movie where the suspension of the rules and expectations of everyday life provide an arena for the protagonist to dispense with his self-censorship, dispense with his self-criticism, and, dis- and identify his, his own power and hunger and needs and appetites in a way that's presented as, as yes, transgressive, but also positive. And it's important to me to think that this what this is doing is it is it is setting up a framework of reward or punishment for what he does you know chatting up random women and is largely the case of the movie drinking martinis walking around wearing a suit these things all have good or bad feelings associated with them at different times and it's taking the expectations of how these things work at home and and upending them so that they work differently in this transformative different place but at the same time, when we're talking about the feedback loops, the neurological feedback loops associated with this dopamine experience, it's not about reversing or upending the feelings and meanings of, of what makes you feel good, what makes you feel bad, what makes you feel free, what makes you feel guilty. It's about erasing those attachments altogether. And at least it, it seems to be an aspect of that. It is, and it's like if you were to make swingers today, which I guess maybe they do all the time. I think it's called Girl Trip. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Girl Trip, but I suspect it's similar. They, they make movies like this all the time, which are about kind of like you know, grow, they're growing up movies. Well, that yeah, but Stella, to Stella, Stella's always losing her groove and and always having to yeah. to get her groove back, right? Like there is this sort of there is this kind of cycle of disillusionment and reillusionment that that happens in in life, and so these these movies uh, are very you know are, are going to happen, and like every every time there's a new demographic that's important to Hollywood, they're going to make this movie. And like it'll be like, oh, oh my goodness, no one's ever thought of this before. It's like, no, you know, Stella, Stella got her groove back a long time ago. But, I mean, there. I think in by one way of thinking, every groove is a groove that has been gotten back, because you know, groove is this sort of original sin of humanity. The sort of primary, or the primary act of life can be considered as groove, and this groove is something that uh, happens cyclically and comes and goes, and things get groove and lose groove, and the sun rises and sets, and the seasons change, and death and rebirth, and youth and age. It's all grooves coming back, and uh, and the cycle in of winning and losing in a place like Vegas, in a space of chance, in a space of where incentive, psychological incentive is being constructed in order to break the social conventions of reward. I'm I'm interested in what you guys think too, but I, I feel like there's definitely a, a, a conversation to have here. I think it's also related to the opioid crisis, honestly, where the mechanisms and the increased knowledge that are related to how these cycles happen is changing the way that they relate to meaning and identity. And, and and I think that uh, 
that's interesting and scary. And I don't know what Vegas means in the context of that. Well, so let me, I want to dig in a little bit on, on, on what you're saying. And I think just as a, let me, let me offer a, uh, a sort of philosophical case study here that I think might, uh, get into, get into what you're talking about. I, uh, I, this, uh, weekend there was a big Powerball jackpot, Powerball, the national lottery. I don't know if it's in all 50 states, but it's in a heck of a lot of them. And, Uh, Not Powerball, the American Gladiators event, but Powerball, the lottery. No, though though you can, I'm sure you can gamble on the American Gladiators event in Las Vegas. You know, the the, (laughs) sports book is is voluminous in that, uh, in in a lot of those casinos. Um, Because I knew we had sort of settled on we were going to talk about... Uh, Vegas and gambling and and chance and luck and and discourses around this sort of thing. And um, so I thought, well, how can I participate in this? And, you know, you walk... uh, Do do you have these in in other states? There are these kind of displays, these these like LCD displays in the windows of bodegas and gas stations and things like this that are a strip of three numbers for the the Powerball, the California Super Lotto, and the Mega Millions. I guess maybe they're different. In in just... So advertising what the jackpots are. So just in the course of going through the city it's impossible not to be aware of like big national lottery jackpots because the number the giant red lighted up number is constantly sort of flashing in your face no matter where and sometimes it'll be like in three windows in a single strip mall or something like that like that you you can't uh uh you can't escape it so um it was a it was a high one. It was over five hundred million dollars, and uh, I thought, well, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to my local corner bodega, and I, you know, that that I, I don't frequent often unless I'm I'm in the mood to like uh, unless I'm in the mood to be naughty like in Vegas and buy a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream for five dollars and eat it all. Um, and I uh, I got five uh, Powerball. Quick picks, right? So I bought a lotto ticket, not something I, I can't recall. I must have done it before in my life, but I can't recall when. And then, uh, and I did it a couple hours before the drawing. You know, I made sure that I would be eligible if the, you know, if the drawing, um, for the particular drawing for the big, uh, the big jackpot. That would be pretty rough if they sold you a lottery ticket for a drawing that had already happened. That would be unfortunate. <laughs> I think they shut down. I think they shut down for five minutes. Well, it would be for the next drawing, right? Like, it just, but if, if my numbers were anyway, the, the, I, I bought it and then uh, forgot about it. And then a couple (laughs) hours, a couple hours later that night, I, I Googled Powerball and the numbers. I, I think I matched one white, white ball, you know, and over the course of like, what, six times five, over the course of 30 choices, uh, I matched, uh, one, uh, one white ball and, and, uh, promptly, uh, promptly forgot about it. And so it was, so it was an experience that was not particularly exciting to me. Um, so there are a couple, there are a couple reasons why, and I think they have to do with various kinds of, of decoupling. And let me just kind of like lay out what I think they were. One, the, the transaction is decoupled from the anticipation of reward, right? Like, or from the, the immediacy of reward. Putting, putting a, a $10 on a roulette number, you're, 
already the wheel's already in spin. It's you're already kind of swept up in something, and it's part of the same action, right? Like the the bet and then the the losing. Um, and uh, with buying a lotto ticket, like it's uh, discontinuous in time from the the, the transaction and the thing. The other um, the other thing is that it was at a bodega, right? Like there was no, it was a little bit, I, I associated with, you know, nights when, uh, when my judgment is impaired for some, for some, uh, you know, for some reason of, of, uh, overindulging. And I, and I decide that it would be a good idea to have a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, right? Like I don't have great, uh, I don't have great, um, like luxurious associations or exciting associations with that place. It's more the association of waking up the next day and being like, Oh, I feel like 10 pounds of ice cream heavier. Right. And if you have, if you can actually split bodegas and have a lotto bodega and a, uh, and a, you know, ill-advised junk food bodega, well then check your bodega privilege because you have too many, uh, you have too many convenience stores near to you. And then finally, I didn't see, the actual drawing, right? So there wasn't um, any mounting, there wasn't any kind of rising action. I, I sort of Googled it incidentally and I thought, uh, I thought, um, you know, uh, and I, and it just sort of, the letdown was kind of this, this incidental thing that, that happened. So those are, I mean, those are a couple of kinds of decoupling of association, of expectation, and of kind of investment and reward, or of investment and anticipated reward that I think are, uh, you know, perhaps germane uh, to what you're talking about. And I'll add only, Pete, that I had such great plans for what half a billion dollars would buy for overthinking <laughs> it, right? Like, like some, I, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if you guys have lotto fantasies, you know, like oh, if, yeah. if you had a windfall, like what would you do? Like Pete would probably buy the biggest Subaru ever, you know, like, uh, <laughs> which is coming out next year. I think <laughs> Mark would, Mark, Mark would, uh, invest in the actual, uh, Terminator skeleton and have it displayed in the living room of his apartment. I would, I would well, that just after buying the rights to the Terminator franchise, but <laughs> I would, uh, I would pretty much just continue to run overthinking it but more, <laughs> but but more of it that's that's really all i want that would make me happy um so so yeah uh d d coupling now pete does this get at what you're talking about or are you talking about a still a kind of a still profounder disjunction between uh incentive action and reward I think that what you're saying is really interesting and fits it. I think that this happens along a wide variety of stakes and scopes, and there's no need to deem any one of them illegitimate. I'm really interested in the idea that the lottery was for you, in a sort of path-dependent way, a way of doing Vegas at home, and in that respect failed you. <laughs> that you're like, oh, I expect it to be glitzy and exciting. I expect playing the lottery to be a game that sort of suspends in the air while I'm playing it and, and gives me potentially vast riches while it's happening. And the idea that you were able to forget for a few days to you was a failure of the lottery living up to what you wanted it to be, which was a sort of Vegas. Whereas I think for a lot of people, certainly I think on our side, when we play the lottery – 
it's it's very different from casino gambling. It has this sort of feeling of family associated with it. There's always the hope of not having to work, hmm. <laughs> which I think comes from a uh, – I'm not going to say that my work isn't mandatory, but <laughs> that um, – uh, I, I work in I, when I work professionally. I work at a job where it is somewhat necessary sometimes to think about working smarter, not harder. And I feel like if you're doing that, you're kind of outside of the demographic of the lottery saving you from work, <laughs> right? This idea that like if I only win, you know, the millions for life, then I can sit on my porch and not do anything. The kind of the kind of work that you're being liberated from from doing that is one where you don't have as much sort of personal investment or agency in doing it is the sort of myth. Although, of course, everybody, I think, feels that way to one degree or another. It's a big shared experience. The idea that, oh, you could you could win the lottery and you could do whatever you wanted. You could feel free of your your obligations to grind away at this stone that we're all turning uh, for whatever reason. Well, to feed each other and to clothe each other and such, and ourselves and our kin and things like that. But, but for but for me, the biggest way I gamble is probably when I go on road trips. I buy scratch tickets, and we usually we we make sure we've learned our lesson to make sure that you redeem the scratch ticket in the state where you bought it because it won't be good in another state. So we usually pass through, say, like four or five states on the average road trip. So it's like, okay, if you buy it here, you got to return it here. If you buy it here, you got to return it here. But the first time we did it, we won like 70 bucks. And since then, we've burned that and more. But but because I don't have the expectation that it's going to be glitzy and glamorous, for me, it's linked to this narrative of travel, this narrative of tradition, this narrative of like, let's add this boost to this trip that we're on. And it's interesting to think that neither way is really right or wrong. In the sense of, is the lottery like Vegas at home? Is the lottery something that like a hardworking parent brings home and puts on the fridge for the kids to look at in the hopes that the parent doesn't have to go away to work anymore? Yeah. Or is it something that it's like, oh, you buy it as a treat to see if it'll work, but you know that it won't because you're on a vacation? Uh, like oh, the that's idea exceptionally, of getting- that's exceptionally cruel, right? Like, oh, what? Like, uh, if we like, because everyone knows they're not going to win the lottery, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I don't know if people really know that. <laughs> okay. That's, I mean, I mean, what do you, that, how, how do you consider knowledge? Yeah. Well, yeah time out. Let, let's talk about this. This this thing, this image of the parent putting a lottery uh, ticket on a fridge in hopes that the with the kids then hope that the, the mommy wins a lottery so she doesn't have to go to her to horrible right, like, yeah, but, or, is that a thing well her i mean like, her, just like out of your out of your imagination and the her, tableau, dark tableau you created for us her office her office job every day but then you know she uh she can't actually make a living and raise the kids on that being you know so she's got to put in another 30 hours as a as a toll booth attendant nights and weekends right and so uh you know she's never around in the old ones happen have to raise the younger ones and the ticket represents the hope that the you know that the the family relationships could uh, all could be one and people could be made whole again i don't know that just sounds dark to me what's what's the one with the washing machine <laughs> the lottery with the washing machine did you know what i'm talking about no, like that's, famous, I, that's I, bingo I that's bingo isn't it <laughs> What? This bingo, isn't it? No, no, no. Isn't there like a famous short story about a lottery, about winning a washing machine, and really they euthanize you? Is that uh, a... Whoa, whoa. 
you now we're getting know? dark. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Because I, I don't know. I, I do. I feel like Shirley Jackson. I'm sorry for spoilers, I believe. But I believe it's a uh, it's a short story by Shirley Jackson that was written in 1948 in the New and it was published in the New Yorker. And it's about a, uh, a ritual called the lottery. And um, then uh, it ends with the protagonist being stoned to death. <laughs> <laughs> and um it's it's quite brutal and it's about scapegoating and such but um yes i i the in short answer do i think there is this darker side to the lottery or maybe maybe this is an appropriate place where i can call it gritty that there is a grittier side to the lottery wherein the lottery is some something like we're all too fancy to really play the lottery well that's I think right. I yeah, yeah yeah that's that's absolutely right yeah like we're not the target audience for the lottery uh, because we have, if you if, like, Mark, you mentioned cashing out your four hundred one k to go put it on roulette. If that's like even an option for you, I don't think that you're the target audience for the lottery, um, as yeah. evidenced by the fact that they don't let you buy tickets with credit cards, right? Um, and that's not to look down on it, but I, I do think that there's a degree to which also the fact that the lottery pays for education. Okay, so here's the other. Here's another. Well, yeah, that's of- that's that's another thing, right? Because it becomes a de facto tax on poor people for right. uh, for funding public education. Right. So here's the other thing: is that I don't really know, and I don't know if you guys really know how. I don't know how comfortable I feel about the rightness or wrongness about gambling laws. Because I think to a certain extent they are anti-competitive, wherein the state wants the revenue from things like numbers games. To a certain extent they are they were targeting, I think, specific criminal enterprises that were making money off of gambling. But at the same time, uh, it, these two goals are not necessarily – uh, consistent and dependent with the notion that gambling is itself a moral crime, though of course that belief is there too. It's sort of temperance belief that gambling is intemperate. We know that gambling can be horribly addictive and terribly destructive. It's the kind of thing where sometimes you have to force people to stop doing it, like drinking. Um, but at the same time, this comes with it a notion of the fancy people are going to save the less fancy people from doing something to destroy themselves, which is a bit uncomfortable. And I think that there's a kind of gambling that lives in this space, in this space of like, well, we look down on it. It's not the swingers gambling where, you know, the fans James Bond or James Bond Monte Carlo gambling. Right, right, right. But playing the numbers. Right. And the idea of maybe you'll hit your number. It's in a lot of country songs. It's one of the weird superficial things that separates country music from 90s rock, of which there are fewer and fewer things. Uh, And also the country music is moving into the early aughts with some of its uh, production uh, in terms of its pop rock. And I'm talking mainly about like mainline pop radio country, which I'm sure a lot of country music fans would say is not real country. But it'll be stuff like I bought a scratch ticket and I got enough money, so I bought a six-pack of beer. And and the... uh, snooty, pedantic, cruel, fancy person can say, well, if you took the money you spent on lottery tickets and you put it aside for a couple of days, you could have bought two six-packs of beer. But no, you weren't smart, right? And it's like, okay, you got to get rid of that kind of thinking to understand how this works. And that's what I mean when I say I don't know if people know that they don't win the lottery, uh, like they're not going to win the lottery. I think that you live with the notion and the hope of having enough money for things, even when you know that you don't. And I mean, I will say this. I have definitely lived in my life, and I don't know if you guys have as well, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's all good. I've definitely lived times in my life where I didn't know if I was going to have enough money to eat. You know, I've lived times in my life where I didn't, my family didn't have enough money to have a roof over our head. You know, like I've been in that spot. Maybe, maybe it's, it's due to outlandish circumstances, which I will not describe on this podcast and are not a sort of fundamental fact of my life. But 
I mean, it's a different way of thinking about money. This idea that at some point your problems with money become so big that it becomes the math of it becomes some something detached from your the reality of your getting by day to day, right? Like you're not going to have well, enough money it, it, to pay for all of it. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about decouplings, various decouplings associated with gambling, you're talking about a decoupling of sort of the the assumptions of a social contract and that'll provide for everyone. Uh, I guess and, I also talk about the decoupling of expected value, where like the decoupling of math from gambling, right? Where, yeah. where you no longer yeah. make a judgment about the bet based on the prospects that the bet gives you versus the enjoyment of it, but instead you have this sort of qualitative understanding that you can't if you don't if you don't play you can't win, right? Uh, which is which is yeah part of the whole thing. I'm sorry I got so dark. It's I mean Vegas. no 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 it's not it's it's not because I think it's full of sin darkness and two feet of snow. So. I, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot that that happens here and i think like a lot of it is is particularly american right the way uh poor people in america see themselves as i forget who i'm quoting when i say this but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires uh rather than as a rather than as a class of people who might have interests uh you know might have sort of common interests there's a certain like there's in in america if everyone is free and there's this american dream and everyone is free to kind of go get rich and you know work hard and and uh be industrious and invest and you know go west young man and get an education whatever like there's there's this whole narrative around uh around horatio alger type boots uh, up by the bootstraps and and about you know the, the the kinds of opportunities right there's this sort of marketing line about the the kinds of opportunities so i think not being uh i think there's sort of a uh shame like an unwarranted shame um, well, I, I don't think. I mean, there is an unwarranted shame that goes that goes along with poverty, and it's all well and good to for the you know for the the fancy educated people with four hundred one k's to to sit around and like uh, talk about how it shouldn't be uh, how it shouldn't be the case. But the um, you know, but the uh, uh, the lived experience of it, I think, is 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 the more important piece, and especially especially the lived experience over a long period of time um so that it's not just a, a temporary situation but it becomes something akin to an uh, existential position where you know it sort of colors everything that you think uh it, it becomes a way of being in the world right as uh, the the as this and and this is something that is frankly preyed on right by uh by the people who sort of do do these things there's there's a particularly cruel irony like as we said that education is is funded you know math education <laughs> that would probably uh you know keep you from keep you from this this sort of this sort of gambling right like is is uh uh is funded by the the proceeds from from the the math illiterate gambling itself and that's like uh i don't know it's a it's a problem but we're not talking about that we're talking about fun fun trips well, to here's, vegas here's the thing. You know? well here's the thing is because vegas suspends all that Maybe that's what it is, is like a place where you can go. Here's here's what aspect of Vegas I'm interested in that's fun and that's that's good in this sort of respect. There was a time before Vegas where where you went on vacation in the United States, at least, was relatively close to where you lived because you, people could not afford to fly in airplanes. 
<laughs> right? And and then airplanes all of a sudden proliferate, and you've got airplanes, and people can afford to fly in the airplanes. And now that's when we start. That's when we're not longer in the dirty dancing world where people are going on vacation in the Catskills. Now people get to fly to Florida. Now you Matt gets to go to Disneyland or Disney World, and places like Vegas can pull in people from across America and then eventually from around the world. And it's really interesting to think of the transformative effect of this being a place that you could do you, when Matt, when you go to Vegas, do you drive or fly? Uh, I've done both these days fly yeah. mostly. How long is the drive from LA? Five hours and change. Depending okay. on, on when you go, you can get it can be a lot longer depending on whether you get stuck yeah. in traffic. So it's right on the cusp of being right. of being worth it to uh, being worth it to fly. Is it exciting? Is, which way of getting to Vegas feels like more of a transformation? The you driving know, or yeah, I mean that's that's interesting. Transformation. I think transformation is exactly the right word, and it it can sort of depend, right? Like if you're going with a group of friends. Uh, honestly, like driving is pretty great, right? Cause like you start off, there's road trips, maybe you buy scratchers to redeem when you drive back into the state. <laughs> but if you, you know? buy them in Nevada, you got to redeem them in Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> what scratches in, in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> that, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's true of a lot of the types of entertainment available in, in Nevada. <laughs> what scratches in Vegas, please see a medical professional, but the, the, um, you know, uh, right. That, that's there. There are different rituals. There are different rituals for different sort of groups of people. If I were going with a parent for like a more sedate uh, kind of trip, or if I were going for like a bachelor party where I didn't want to be bothered with cars or things, things like this, I didn't want to have to worry about the uh, the responsibility of driving and the responsibility of sobriety and things like that. Then, then I would definitely fly. But then, if it were like if it were even a weekend, you know, a weekend with a significant other or something like that, there can be. There could be something fun about that about that trip, and like it's whether you go. I mean, a- airplanes always involve this kind of disjunction because you sort of step into a metal tube, and like you're you're in the air, and you're in this kind of non space, non time for a little bit. If you fly any distance, the you know there are time changes, and so there's this kind of discombobulation that happens. Driving to Vegas does something similar because like there's from Los Angeles anyway, uh, from any city, there's the city, and then there's not the city. City, and then there's nothing. There's desert wasteland all around you. And then there's Las Vegas, right? <laughs> and so there's, there is this kind of, there's this approach, right? This sort of thing. And it's one of those things where you, you very much like see it on the horizon. If it's dark out, like you see the, the white laser from the, the Egyptian pyramid kind of shooting into the air. You know, if it's uh, light out, you see the, the tall buildings and stuff. And they're kind of like, they start low on the horizon and they they get there mark you drove right you know you know what i saw driving into vegas was a haze a foreboding haze i was like <laughs> is this air pollution is this just dust this doesn't look like glitzy vegas at all i don't think that's supposed to be part of the uh, uh, the, uh yes yes the, the impending um a dust storm coming from the luxor uh pyramid which is very authentically egyptian let me tell you uh really respects uh you know the the, the ancient the culture and heritage of ancient Egypt. No, no one doesn't at all. Oh man, see that's that to me is exciting. It's the anti Ozymandias. You don't start with a fancy statue and then dissolve into the sand. You start with the sand and then you get to a fancy statue. It's like you build it from the ground up. <laughs> and it's like look upon my look upon my hotel, ye mighty, and have a good time. <laughs> right? Like I'm Ozymandias. <laughs> there it is. 
I am yeah. Ozymandias, manager of the Luxor. Uh, <laughs> um, be young, be, have fun, drink Pepsi. Um, it, it's just it's interesting because these these this that sense of occasion to me gives additional meaning potentially to the risk and reward of gambling, which then it can become decoupled from if you consider it neurologically. Uh, in the sense of like, if going to places like Vegas, Disneyland, Disney World becomes this sort of pedestrian compulsory thing that people feel like they have to do, oh, it's a bachelor party, I have to go to Vegas, I don't really want to. If that's something that people are doing because it's so common to do that now, then it, then it decouples the the excitement of the gambling from the uh, excitement of the sort of citadel in the desert. And I'm interested about people who live in Vegas, uh, who I think is just a hugely interesting uh, demographic. It's just the folks who have – that city has grown so much of people who actually live there. And it's like it's like D.C. in the 1800s where it started with nothing in the swamp and then it grew up to the big metropolis. Um yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. there that and like Mesa, Arizona, or something were the yeah. two like fastest growing, um, you know, fastest growing U.S. U.S. cities or or uh, uh, metropolitan era, areas or something like that. Yeah, and it's uh, uh it's it's so interesting. I mean, it's interesting that they're both sort of desert places that the that you know the Northeast isn't growing, right? Mm, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, can I, I, I mean, I'll speak very briefly to uh, a, a Vegas local who I spent time with there, who's a who's a family friend of ours, um, who uh, he speaks a lot of a, a certain pioneer spirit um, and, and outside of the boxness uh, that defines a lot of people that that uh, that come and go from the city. I and mean, he himself uh, did not grow up in Vegas, uh, spent time on the various coasts uh, and set up shop there to do trading, to make his living as a trading. And, and you know, that like was you know, not his plan. To begin with, but Vegas was the kind of place he's not at all associated with the entertainment or hospitality industries, but it was just felt like the kind of place that was just off the map so you can do something off the map, something transgressive that day to day life doesn't allow in a way that Vegas is quite interesting well, set up to do. I mean, I, th- this is an interesting thing. And I mean, ultimately, it seems like the what we're arriving at is a theory where the the. Um uh, the the vacation or the sort of the the temporary fantasy, however long it is, whether it's week long in the in the case of a lotto ticket or whether it's uh, uh, instantaneous in in the sense of a um, a bet at the slot machines, right? Like, is you you there's a there's a I'm just taken by this word that Pete used that's like transformation, right? And and for a moment, for however long that is, you get to sort of live another life. You get to live another. Uh, a different fantasy life and and I guess that is an interesting thing that like that even even down to the people who choose to live there it it is that sense of disjunction and that sense of of um anything goes or anything anything is possible and we, and we do things in in normal life to sort of uh to sort of like engage that feeling. I think a lot of our entertainment is sort of the emotional transportation business. I once heard it described that way by an entertainment executive, right? Like, and, and things like, uh, you know, things like adventure films, which in a lot of time, a lot of the times are, are, or uh, like superhero movies, which are power fantasies, uh, a lot of the time or, or video games and things like this are ways of doing, um, 
ways of of uh transformation i mean i i i i'm not a, a gamer so i don't know if if sort of games games and games of chance have managed to I mean, overlap that, in a particular way f- funny you should mention as jackie gleason would say right uh is is <laughs> well jackie jackie actually, jackie mason would say jackie mason not, not jackie gleason not not jackie gleason not, say, nazi, like, nazi bastards yeah. Yeah, there it is. Jackie Mason would say something entirely different. But yes, there's been a big crisis happening in video games because of the increased utilization of this sort of neurological thinking in building the payoff structures for playing video games. And this is something that has really a big trend that has come out of Asia and taken over the whole world. And yes, there's parts of it that started in Europe and the United States, but this idea of the slot machine kind of video game, these loot boxes, these gotcha games where you get collect your characters and stuff. A lot of games now, even more the rule than the exception, at least by revenue, it are have relatively cheap upfront costs, and then you continually play and uh, either through time playing or through paying actual money, earn chances to improve some aspect of the game. Often the accusation is to have a better chance of winning the game or to be psychologically manipulated in other ways. And one big issue we saw recently was the big launch of Star Wars Battlefront Two, which was a huge scandal because EA, the publisher, tacked on at the end of the development cycle, this mechanic of if you play the game for X number of hours or give us X number of dollars, eventually you'll get to be Darth Vader. And it turns out that the number is like you have to play it every week full time for your whole life for like two years if you want to be Darth Vader or you can pay us a whole ton of money. And that this is seen as manipulative of children. This is seen as engaging in the morally negative aspects of gambling that we've hinted at and talked about slightly in this podcast i'm i am shocked wrong, Pete, shocked yeah. that manipulation of children goes on in the video game industry <laughs> <laughs> man and i think we all yeah the, there were two roads that diverged in a yellow wood and i'll tell you exactly when they diverged <laughs> they diverged when mortal Kombat came out and on the sega genesis they put the blood in and in the in the super nintendo it was brown dirt because they didn't want to put blood in the game and that was where video games kind of branched off uh in between this idea of like this is something that's for children versus like this is something that's for aggressive sensation and will have no rules uh it was very finish cool. him yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because you sh- you shouldn't i mean the kids can have their parents credit cards but but the big thing here's what the big thing is is that in two ways it decouples from conventional ideas of reward one of them is that in these sorts of games you don't have to please the large number of players in order for your game to be successful you merely need to collect large amounts of money from relatively small numbers of people and this defies the expectations of the mass media age oh i'll make the best game or the most fun game or the most popular game a lot of people will get it and that will be success and i should appeal to what they want i should respond to what the public cares about uh, well, you know what? If the public isn't the people giving you money, then they're not the people that you necessarily have a primary responsibility to respond to. And now you start seeing more and more entertainments where the bulk of the people who are getting it, their interests aren't represented in what the entertainment is showing you. 
or or having you do it like actively attempts to frustrate you and make your life worse and and this is in order to get payouts from a small number of people now i'm not saying any one game is exactly like that but this is a sort of specter that hangs over these kinds of games that the games are are painful and addictive and if, if you don't pay money uh then they're not you can't play them and have fun can you what's and, a what's a loot box can you describe a loot box oh, to me i don't, I don't yeah, just sure. i don't play video games really Sorry, I got a little bit excited because of the dopamine and serotonin uptakes uh, that are going on in <laughs> podcasting. I'm I'm helplessly addicted to podcasting. All right, we we so, all we all are, brother. That's why I'm playing the lotto every week. <laughs> so let's say you're playing Overwatch, which is a first-person shooter game. You get to pick your character, and you go out there and you're in a team and you shoot the other team. Um, at the end of uh, your games, you might accrue points. And again, gosh, now I wish I played Overwatch more recently. I stopped a, a bunch months ago but you will eventually get uh what's called a a box or a crate in various games that will appear in an inventory and you go to a separate screen uh to open your boxes in some games you just click on them in some games you need to purchase a key to do it and the box will animate and explode in a sort of slot machine-esque way there will be noises and colors and lights and uh and sometimes they are skeuomorphically related to other sorts of gambling systems um in the sense of like there's a user experience that's quite similar to various sorts of gambling and then there'll be like an explosion and then you will get a thing and the thing is often, and I think in the sort of um, most consensus-accepted variation of this sort of mechanic, a cosmetic that doesn't affect how the game plays, but maybe allows you to customize how your character looks. So maybe you like to play as Winston the Gorilla in Overwatch, you get an outfit that has a little pith helmet for Winston the Gorilla, so he looks like he's on safari. And so you could get that from a loot box. Ah, you have a chance irony. of getting yeah. that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but, but these things like Magic the Gathering cards will have rarities. Like certain ones will be rare, certain ones will be common. You'll get a whole bunch of the cruddy ones that are less desirable or more basic, and the ones that are really great, you'll get fewer of, and you'll have to get more loot boxes. And the idea is that if you play the game for a long time, you'll get this steady flow of loot boxes to allow you to participate in this lottery for either cosmetics, skins is the word for when you change what the character looks like on the outside. Though in some cases, it might be something that affects how the game plays. A weapon, for example. Now, this isn't necessarily the case in Overwatch, but in something like Team Fortress, you open up the treasure chests or what have you with keys, and you might get a special weapon that... Um, would would make your character better or worse at the game potentially and different games you know adjudicate this in different ways but it gets to the point where if i pay x number of dollars i am required to pay x number of dollars in order to have a reasonably good chance of having the weapons that i need to play competitively against other people who are good at the game otherwise i will almost always lose against people who are good um so there's this variation that mechanic you just described there is that at play in the new Star Wars game, or is it more kind of like you just got to like invest an insane amount of time or um, some egregious amount of money to unlock characters and therefore their special abilities? But well, they it, it does it also have that added layer. Well, in that one, it was unlocking characters, and the characters have different abilities. Sure. So I, I actually never – I haven't played that game. And they also, at the, because of the big protests, ended up rolling back temporarily a lot of the things they were going to implement. But they'll probably implement them in the future. I mean they're probably going to make a lot of money doing so. But we'll see. I mean EA takes a lot of hits to the chin in terms of its public reputation. It wasn't voted the most hated company in America yeah, twice in a row for no reason. It's interesting. But they're taking those hits instead of Disney. 
or kind of in the place of yeah. Disney or, or, uh, or Lucasfilm, right? Uh, it's worth noting in, in the context of this conversation when we're talking about the moralization around gambling and its supposed evil and things like that, right? The Walt Disney Corporation actually takes that stance, not because they're moralizers, but because they don't want composition for their theme parks. So we talked about this in our uh, Last Jedi uh, podcasts and the uh, whole thing with like Kanto Bite, the Space Macau, how it's like that's the bad place, but uh, yeah. uh, Disney theme parks are their good place. So on one hand, right, they take this supposed moral stance against gambling. On the other hand, by their proxies in EA, they are engaged in a similar type of exploitative behavior that is not unlike what we the mechanics that we see at a casino. Is that fair to say, Pete? Yeah, I, I would think it would be fair to say that Disney has taken action to try to limit the participation of the Star Wars brand in a variety of different kinds of gambling, and that they hopefully – this has been a big outcry – hopefully Disney can see what is happening with their brand if it ends up being this basically like source of hooking children on gambling uh, through like these... A, a new kind of slot machine. Yeah, you know, and, and again, yeah. I don't necessarily want to be the person moralizing about it, but I'm interested in the fact that it's happening. Uh, I mean, it seems, just on a revenue basis, this is a big deal for video games and for entertainment in general. What was the... How, how much would I have to pay to, to play as Darth Vader? Like, what are, what are the dollar... Oh, man. On what scale oh, are the dollar amounts we're talking about? Oh, uh, how much to play as Darth Vader? So, some number of... <laughs> I mean, like, because it's different if it's some number of dozens of dollars, some number of, of hundreds of dollars, or some number of thousands of dollars, right? Like Right. Um, so, uh, it's looking like... Luke and Vader are the two that were the two most expensive heroes at sixty thousand credits. So how much does a credit cost? But for in terms of amount of time to play to to unlock them, um, it was what two thousand three hundred minutes. Uh, how much was the money? Nine hundred and fifty-five dollars to unlock the heroes in the game. Oh wow! Holy crap! Yeah. That's now that's not- that's somebody calculated. That's what it would take to unlock the whole all the heroes in the game. Was nine hundred and fifty-five dollars, and this is for a game that was already that a lot of these games are free to get, and then you just you know you spend money on it if you want, I guess. Well, right. That's um, I mean that's the thing. So not this, this one though. No, this one was actually like a triple A title that comes with a big price tag on it. So, and then it was still they were still expecting you to shell out on upwards of a thousand dollars to fully be able to play the game. Now, granted, they didn't expect people to actually do that, but. You know, do you come to buying a video game with the expectation that you'll be able to make use of its full content that's in the download? That's that's a fundamental question here that the companies and the individuals have different opinions about the players and the and the producers, as it were. Um, but yeah, I'm not joking around. This is serious nonsense. But like, so, so. I mean, I, the the way I'm familiar with this is is because I'm a you know participant in the Apple ecosystem, um, and like uh, this is. Um, a, a psychological thing that happens in the app store that like people won't pay, you know, 15 bucks, 20 bucks for a video game, right? right. That they'll, they'll pay, you know, free to play and then kind of microtransactions uh, throughout the thing, which sort of hides the cost of the, uh, hides the cost of the, the um, video game that they're buying from them. And that, that like, that, that has led to the, to the development of this, this kind of thing. And then, like also like there are well, at in Disney in Las Vegas at all of these uh 
companies, um, there are behavioral scientists like studying actively how the kind of the behavioral psychology uh, works and that at in any if you are a, a online brand worth, you know, uh, of any kind of stature, you are constantly running tests on your users to try to optimize for the metrics that that you uh, are doing. Like, like we do this on overthinking it, by the way, right? Like uh, we I implemented the the mobile click to read more um, feature on overthinking it because overthinking it has uh, uh, has long articles and we were losing people who would kind of scroll through a couple screens of an article and not read the whole thing and then stop and so we you know we put in a button we truncated the articles on mobile devices put in a button that says click to read more and you know you're exposed to this um, you're exposed to this kind of related content widget that can send you to things and it's all uh, algorithmically generated based on the tags on the uh, on the article right like even even us even even little us before our huge infusion of capital from the lottery right like we're (laughs) we're participating in 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 this sort of thing and so you're you know you are you were sort of being studied at all um at all stages of this like disney did some fascinating uh uh, experiments with this having to do with like line waiting at the resorts and 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 um and things like this that's why they have these long uh long lines that that wind back and forth because you're always walking a little you don't feel uh, you don't feel the weight in quite the same way as, as, as you would. And we're all, you know, I don't know, this is, there is this, like, there is this sense in which we are, we are designing an environment that, um, that takes advantage of our instincts or that kind of like leverage it. I'm, I apologize. I said the L word, uh, <laughs> that uses, uh, our instincts, um, in a way that is uh, beneficial to to the people designing the environments and not necessarily in the way that we would wish if we had volition. Another way to put this is that if you are going to spend a little bit of time uh, being emotionally transported, if you're going to take a mental vacation um, and become a, uh, you know, become a different person uh, in a different reality, uh, fantastically in a couple uh, for a few minutes or, or hours, um, be careful who you let design those alternate identities and those kind of alternate realities for you because they, they may not have your your best interests at heart yeah and i would say that it's not like this stuff is universally bad but it is different and the ways in which they're different leaves gaps so for example you know i don't think we would want to go back to dead ball baseball where you can't hit the ball out of the park because of the way the baseball is designed and and manufactured the idea of the home run has positive aspects both in terms of playing and watching baseball and so the thing that strikes me, I've been trying to figure out, yes, we've, this idea that gambling can be an addiction and really, and it can really diminish your quality of life to get pulled into a gambling relationship where you blow a lot of money or even blow a lot of time on something like this. I don't want to just universally pan it altogether, but, but that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that in pop culture and cultural contexts, there is something that I think enriches the experience that we get out of it as a culture, you know, as cultural participants, when these reward structures get aligned somehow 
uh, or with a, a signifying meaning that we can engage with, a narrative that mean that means something to us that that has some sort of significance. And I'm concerned about disregarding the narrative as hurting the participation in the culture at large. So I don't have a problem necessarily with juicing or dejuicing the baseball because it has to do with the idea of the home run. And how important is the home run? And do people want to see the home runs? And yes, like, yes, it's important for the game to be fair, and that's part of it. But but the idea of like, oh, you know, home runs have this sort of symbolism in baseball, and singles and doubles and triples have other sorts of symbolism in baseball, it's a different experience. That I don't necessarily have as much of a gut issue with as the idea of we are going to separate the playing of the game from a neurologically conditioned reward system. And it, I mean, I can't even think of a metaphorical sort of situation like this in baseball. Like what the team whose fans buy more hot dogs wins more, gets a free run. Right. Um, it, it just, what it does is it diminishes the players on the field. And, and I think what you get to there is a potentially a collapse of what it means for the players to be on the field in the first place. And maybe that certainly has happened in other sports where you've seen a collapse of the distinction between the professionals and the amateurs, like in obstacle course racing and CrossFit and such, where like Instagramming that you're doing the thing is the spectator sport. But uh, as more, even more than the stuff that you see on television and, and all that stuff. But, but I do, I do feel like if you value these spaces that are set aside for these games and these play experiences as cultural phenomena, the idea of decoupling the reward structure from those core symbols is, is something that, that really gets me in the gut and really affects how I feel and think about it and is culturally interesting. So that's really what I want to say about all that for now. Oh, and by the way, to actually play Darth Vader, eh, you probably would have had to spend like $60, $100. I don't know. But I don't know. I, I, we don't. We don't know now. We won't know for a while. I guess you just got to spin the wheel and see what happens. Yeah. So this. Uh, so I uh, through a complicated series of events that I won't get into. Uh, the other weekend, I had courtside seats at a Clipper game, and so Ooh, it, <laughs> somebody won the lottery. I know, right? This, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we were sitting. We were sitting in seats um, that uh, – it's a long story. I won't get into it. But the seats Is next – Is that referred to as one of two California basketball teams that aren't the Golden State Warriors? Is that how their, their official name is right now? You can, go, you can go directly to hell. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, um, I'm, I'm given to understand that the Lakers are going to be good again any day now. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the seats next to ours, by the way, they, ha- they have like uh, uh, titles in the paint on the, on the floor. That's, you know, how in – the, in the first row that's what it's like and the um and the uh uh seats next to next to ours ours were a uh, uh, sport belonged to a sports agency that i have a friend who has some tangential connection with but the ones next to ours were uh they said uh the carter family and uh unfortunately mr and mrs carter were not at the game um but the people who they gave their seats to were were uh uh were really nice anyway so the the um the uh in the the uh latter you know minutes of the game if the uh visiting team misses two free throws in a row um chick-fil-a gives a free chicken sandwich to everyone (laughs) 
<laughs> in the Staples Center, everyone in the this enormous auditorium, and it happened. This uh, this success condition was triggered, and uh, and so the you know the, there was like there's graphics, there's an audio thing that plays. There's I mean it's not confetti because that would dis- disrupt the game, but um, you know this thing happened, <laughs> and I looked over because I was sitting right at the end of the Clippers bench, and so you know there were the the I could have reached out and touched any any number of the players, and they were uh, <laughs> one of them turned to the other and derisively did an impression of Oprah, and said, "You get a chicken, and you get a chicken." <laughs> And you get a chicken, <laughs> and you get a chicken. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, a little bit like, um, yeah, I, I don't know, a little, a little bit. I think this is this is an interesting exercise in mindfulness you can do. That when when are you in when are you in a uh, uh, a reward structure that actually suits the narrative of your life and actually kind of you know forwards some sort of. Uh, uh, some sort of story that you would actually wish to tell yourself about yourself. And when are you just getting a chicken? <laughs> anyway, uh, we hope, uh, we hope 2018 is a very lucky year for you and, uh, for all of us. Um, it's not the lottery, but if you want to support Overthinking It, be, consider becoming a member at overthinkingit.com slash join. I joked about getting Pete Fenzel out of the, the slot machine, but uh, our members at, at the high levels get access to a uh, behind-the-scenes audio archive, which includes special podcasts from Pete Fenzel, which if you're listening to us, you must, it must be something that you want uh, in your life. <laughs> Overthinking. They're great. The Disaster Artist is a great movie, and you should listen to the special edition podcast that I recorded. Oh about. yeah, recent, so there you go. recent, uh, yeah, recent, recent topics have been fantastic. So go, uh, go to overthinking dot com slash join and uh, make it your resolution to join Overthinking It in twenty eighteen. All right, we'll see you next week, or you'll hear us next week. Rather, until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, dot com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Members of the audience, we can't have this conversation about gambling without giving you some, you some very important advice, which is that you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You need to know when to walk away and know when to run. Why, Clef? Get the funk up. Clef says, my- get the funk up. <laughs> and my sincere apologies to the Sacramento Kings. Sources tell me they are, in fact, a professional basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> God. It's a week into the year, and we already have to issue an apology. <laughs> <laughs>